have a medically induced eating disorder. And he actually turned around to me and said, doctors cause this illness and I as a doctor am going to step up. If we're trying to treat the issue of an eating disorder by telling people to do more of the same, this is not a logical approach. Hurting people, trying to heal them, but continuing to hurt them, essentially. You don't go to the GP and get told to get younger in order to improve this health outcome. It was missed by, I guess, everyone. Nobody considered that an eating disorder could be something that was experienced for me, particularly, I think, because of my body size. There's this phenomenon I like to call the higher weight paradox. It's similar to the happiness paradox that Aristotle first wrote about, but many others have since. Essentially, it says that the more you strive for happiness, the less happy you end up. There are a whole lot of podcasts dedicated to it, and this isn't it. But my higher weight paradox goes along similar lines. The more a health professional instructs a patient with an eating disorder to take direct action to lose weight, the worse the problem gets. It sounds quite simple, but people who are in a larger body are told to lose weight every single day, regardless of whether or not they're at risk of an eating disorder. And people who don't fit the eating disorder stereotype are often invisible when they ask for help. This is Butterfly Let's Talk. I'm Sam Iken, and thank you for being here. We have a problem where the the image of somebody who has an eating disorder is somebody who is very thin, often often young, often female. So that's sort of the typical image that we see. This is Professor Leah Brennan. She's a psychologist and a professor in psychology at La Trobe University. When people see somebody who fits that stereotype, they automatically think that there may well be an eating disorder at play, uh, whereas we don't think about eating disorders actually happening across the weight spectrum. Um, and And often people aren't aware that actually the prevalence of eating disorders is higher in people who are of higher weight. It was missed by, I guess, everyone. Nobody considered that an eating disorder could be something that was experienced for me, particularly, I think, because of my body size. Um, It was more encouraged, I guess, my symptoms. So my name is Melissa Hawkins. Um, So I have a lived experience of an eating disorder in a larger body. Um, I'm 28 years old at the moment, and I am a youth counsellor. Melissa says she had a diagnosable eating disorder from the age of 12, but she didn't ever consider that it was even a possibility for her for more than a decade. I was actually in a training on eating disorders when I was 23 and for my study um, as a social worker. And I remember sitting in the training room and listening to them describe the symptoms and the behaviours and I was just like mentally ticking them off in my head. And that was like the first time I actually felt like, oh, wait, this could be a thing that's going on for me. It's like I heard about eating disorders in the past, but like it was never kind of like, It was kind of like, I guess, like a light bulb moment then that this could be something going on for me. Early intervention would have been helpful. Um, I think it could have avoided a lot of um, long-term issues for me. Unfortunately, Melissa's experience isn't isolated. The stigma around being higher in weight leads to criticism of someone's lifestyle instead of an investigation into why it's harder for this person to fit the accepted norms. They also end up believing it's their fault and that if they keep trying the things that haven't worked for them over and over again, eventually, one day, it will work. Dieting is so normalised and dieting is what people with eating disorders very commonly do. And so instead of being uh, met with a concern response by a GP or any other health professional really at this point, 
they're met with a, oh, well, good on you, keep going. I guess, you know, you that's, that's good that you're doing that because you're larger bodied. All of these very socially normed kind of narratives um, come out of health professionals as well. But again, that's that red flag just walking straight past you. Dr. Fiona Willer is a dietitian and a size-inclusive health advocate. She says people who are at the higher end of the weight spectrum are treated differently than people who are not when they go and see a health professional, and there may be valid reasons for that. But the outcome is that people in this category are less likely to seek help. The mainstream approach for larger body people, unfortunately, is still that the higher body weight is problematized. Um, rather than being accepted as a unique part of that human being. Because as soon as we start messing with body shape, that means we're messing with eating and we're messing with moving and we're messing with thinking. And that's really the core problem. What's the effect of this kind of approach? They don't go to the doctor. I mean, you don't go places where you know you're going to get shamed, right? And so the effect of weight centrism, particularly in primary care, is that people will delay going to the doctor until they can, can't can avoid it. You know, the, the problem that they've got um, has to be seen, but often that they'll delay until later than an, another person might. And then when they're in at the doctor, they uh, often their weight is blamed for whatever they're presenting complaint, whether it's a sore foot, a sore tummy, tiredness, you know, the you, you need to lose weight is kind of the I don't know bucket typically. I avoided as much as I could. Like a lot of other people's experience, I would go in there for something that was non-weight related, such as a common cold or even just an, a certain injury and be told to lose weight. You know, that was just the normal for me. So I would avoid medical treatment unless it was like absolutely necessary. And I'd still do that to this day. Not everybody who's classified as obese has experienced an eating disorder. But around 90% of the people who are diagnosed with binge eating disorder have experienced obesity. But the people who fit the medical criteria for being obese would never consider that there was a condition beyond their control that had caused it, whether it's an eating disorder or something else. Instead, they think it's their fault for not being able to fix it. Meanwhile, the prevalence of eating disorders is increasing in people of all body types, particularly people of a higher weight. The effect is, particularly for people who believe that their body size is a problem, you know, the, the government's telling them it's a problem, their doctor's telling them it's a problem, their family might be telling them it's a problem, they really truly believe that it's a problem. No one has said, hey, 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 hang on. Your body is doing the best that it can and nutrition, nourishment, eating well, living well, being fit for purpose, these things are going to actually, you know, give you the kind of health outcome you desire rather than chasing numbers down the scale. So the, the effect is that people diet harder, essentially, if they believe all of the narratives that are, that are weight-centric. And dieting, particularly for weight loss, because of the extreme energy, um, negative energy balance that's required for significant weight loss to occur, those people are running towards malnutrition, essentially. And malnutrition is much worse for you than any of the other chronic diseases that we're commonly concerned about at a public health kind of level. I was definitely in denial that that was something that was going on for me. And I think particularly I struggled with my particular diagnosis. I think that that was, yeah, like I said, kind of really difficult to kind of comprehend. And then for health professionals to also not have that understanding or that, um, you know, I guess that stigma around it as well was really difficult. 
so far, it sounds like we're being quite critical of your average family doctor, but we need to make it clear that there are a growing number of GPs who have seen the evidence firsthand and have changed how they work. They've adopted a size-inclusive work ethic and they're seeing that this works much better. I've been a GP for the last five years. I think I need to be really intentional to flag that I'm a safe, inclusive space and that includes weight-inclusive um, care. This is Dr Samantha Whiten. She's a GP who practices in Hobart, Tasmania, and she has a lived experience of an eating disorder herself. If you have any patient-facing resources or that sort of thing, being mindful of stigmatising language, um, an example of that is the word obesity. I consider that to be a slur, actually, so I don't use that um, with my patients at all. Um, sometimes I use it in medical speak because it's necessary um, if I'm talking to other colleagues or that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, that's a commitment that I've made to my patients is not to um, not to talk about that um, with them because I think it's, um, it's not helpful um, to refer to them in that way. Referring to obesity as a disease is probably the biggest thing that we're taught in medical training. And I don't agree that, um, uh, you know, I don't agree with the word obesity at all, um, but I don't agree that obesity is a disease. I think we have a wide variety of shapes and sizes, and that is just part of the human condition. Um, and it doesn't make you diseased. Now, you may have some medical conditions for sure, but it may be linked with um, being higher weight potentially, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the weight itself is a disease. The risk factors which are generally associated with obesity include high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, some forms of cancer, and there are others. Ask your GP, I'm sure they'll be able to tell you. We do have evidence that has proven over and over again that there is a strong correlation between being higher weight and certain diseases. But the, my argument there is what are we actually going to do about it and what are the harms of recommending intentional weight loss, which can be significant. So as a GP, this puts you in a tough situation, right? I mean, how do you handle that? How it works for me is I consider weight to be a non-modifiable risk factor. So other non-modifiable risk factors are things like family history, um, sex. So if a man came in to see me, right, and had no other risk factors and I, you know, one day I had a man, they were both the same age and then I had a woman come in the next consult, both looking at their risk of cardiovascular disease, that man would be a higher risk because of his sex. But I'm not going to say go and change your gender, you know, or, or you can't even okay. you can't change your birth sex. You're still, you know, you're still high risk whether or not you identify as male or not gotcha. because of the hormonal differences um, from baseline. That's not something that I can change, you know, in order to modify their risk. And so I consider weight to be the same in the same category there. I do believe that weight um, is related to health, perhaps not as strongly as perhaps we've been led to believe in the past, and. There are a whole range of other factors that can explain that link, particularly weight stigma. So there, there is a relationship, but it's not necessarily a direct relationship from adiposity to, to well-being. It's not quite that simple. Uh, so that's sort of how you know, I make sense of it. And I guess the other idea that I really like is the idea that weight is a non-modifiable risk factor. So just like age is a non-modifiable risk factor, you don't go to the GP and get told to get younger in order to improve this health outcome. The vast majority of health professionals that I work with, including GPs, are on board with this. They're trying to um, make a positive difference. They're trying to um, work well with the, with the patients that they're working with across the weight spectrum. So I think the intentions are good and there are some excellent um, 
GPs and, and other health professionals doing really great work in this space. Uh, but often um, that's um, they're individually having to grapple with these two different paradigms, if you like, this um, obesity um, medical paradigm around weight and then the eating disorder mental health paradigm that has a different understanding and they're, they're quite they're incompatible. It's quite hard to pull those two things together. So um, in most cases, I think intentions are good. People are trying to do the right thing and it's actually really hard to integrate those two different fields. The first paradigm Leah's talking about here is what we've already called the traditional or the mainstream approach. Uh, if we break it down into its simplest elements, it goes like this. Weight is highly correlated with health. Improving weight will improve health. Every individual has the capacity to improve their weight. And the best way to do that is by going on a restrictive diet. The alternate paradigm where we I hope we're moving, and certainly some professionals are already in this space, uh, is the idea that uh, weight is perhaps not as strongly related to health as what we have traditionally thought, that weight loss is not achievable for the majority of people. And so it's not really a good strategy for improving health. And actually that it focusing on health behaviors um, and quality of life and self-care and well-being uh, is is the pathway to, to better health uh, rather than weight loss being this sort of thinking that weight loss is a, is a pathway to get to those better health outcomes. You can't really put those two paradigms together, but their principles are, are contradictory. And I think that's a really hard space that we're in at the minute. I have heard from my patients previously that they've gone in for an issue that's not at all related to their weight and have come out with a weight loss, a prescription for a weight loss medication or advice regarding you know, diet and lifestyle, or just an assumption that their medical problem, you know, they could have broken their arm or something, and that was solely related to their weight. When we know that anyone can trip over and break their arm at any time, yeah. and it's not necessarily related to the weight at all. Um, and so I see that quite a bit. We hear from a lot of people who say that doctors should be telling patients they need to lose weight because they have the patient's best interests at heart. But as we've already discussed, that's not necessarily the case. The medical sector's obsession with weight loss is firstly not working. Just look at the national obesity statistics. And secondly, it's causing actual harm to people who are at risk. My name's Sarah. I am 34. I live in Queensland. I work in the education field. It started with an anesthesiologist, actually. I was about to go in for surgery and an anesthesiologist said, just before she put me under just so you know, your weight's so bad you could die in this and I really should have known about that beforehand. You should really do something about it. And then I fell asleep for the surgery. Then just medical professional, medical professional just telling me basically, you will die were the words they used if you don't lose weight. And that was in my 20s. Um, and that led to basically as the story went on, I developed anorexia nervosa um, and required significant support. You weren't being treated for something eating disorder related? No, I had never been treated for anything for eating disorder related before. Do you feel like you were treated differently to everyone else? Absolutely. The first time, first of all, they, they didn't care about my numbers except for my weight. They said, we don't care that every other lab is healthy. You need to lose weight. I had a lot of pressure from medical pre personnel telling me you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight. And then when I started doing it and I realized that it was getting out of control, I actually went to my GP. I remember very, very clearly going to my GP and saying to them, look, I get dizzy all of the time when I stand up. I 
you know, have had all of these symptoms happening that are very significant. And my GP turned around to me and said, that means the diet's working and you should keep doing what you're doing. And then proceeded to prescribe me with a weight loss medication. Um, so I sought help a number of times initially and was basically told you can't have an eating disorder. You are overweight. I was in hospital referred by my GP because she was concerned about my medical stability. And I literally had a member or from the mental health team come down and the words they said was, we are sending you home. You cannot possibly have an eating disorder because you are overweight. You need to go home and continue to lose weight like your doctor has told you to. Wow. After the fourth time that I ended up in hospital and they realized, oh, look, all of this bad stuff is having happening. She's having all of these symptoms. We need to admit her. That was when I got the diagnosis. But it was about, I would say, 12 to 15 months after I started health seeking and it was about the ninth or 10th health professional I had seen in order to get the diagnosis that anorexia and even then they were like oh it's it's atypical anorexia you can't have real anorexia because your BMI is too high you know I'd had other hospitals send me home after an inpatient medical refeeding with a weight loss plan so I think we're starting to get an idea of why eating disorders in people of a higher weight are under-recognised and under-treated. When people fall for weight loss treatment, we are telling them to you know, restrict what they're eating, um, exercise more, um, perhaps you know, limit the types of food, the amount of food, the macronutrients, whatever it might be. Um, so we're telling them to restrict their eating largely. And then when someone presents for treatment for an eating disorder, we're telling them to do the opposite. We're telling them to eat flexibly and don't apply these dietary rules and, you know, eat in a way that fits with your lifestyle. So really diametrically opposed advice, um, depending on the, the reason you present or the setting. Usually on the path towards their eating disorder, there is some weight concern. In there and so if we're trying to treat what we're uh the the issue of an eating disorder by telling people to do more of the same this is not a logical a logical approach and it's like hurting people trying to heal them but continuing to hurt them essentially i was ready to take my own life um one of the biggest struggles with my treating team was my inability to get the higher level support that I needed led to me becoming suicidal um, because I felt like I would never get better. I was completely hopeless. I I was like, this this is if this is my life, if no one is willing to treat me and I can't stop this, and my only other alternative is, you know, going back to my old like what's the point in being alive? Um, you know, it was just that real cycle that I couldn't get out of. It's difficult to work out how big this problem is because we don't know how many people who are of a higher weight are experiencing an undiagnosed eating disorder. Finding that out would take a lot of money and a top-notch research team, and currently that's not being done. What we do know is that what's being done right now simply isn't working. Is it possible that they should at least try and rule out that somebody has an eating disorder before start telling them to lose weight? 
Oh, yes, they absolutely should. So I, I think we should clarify too that although people with binge disorder, uh, and of course there is a distribution here because there are many people uh, with lower weights that also would fit yes. the criteria for binge eating disorder. We also have to remember that there are a lot of people in larger bodies. In Australia, lots and lots, more than half in a body size that um, the government would like to deem as unacceptable. Um, n- by no means does everyone in a large body have an eating disorder either. So we're talking about a piece of the population here. Um, and you can't, as you know, Sam, tell if somebody's got an eating disorder by looking at it, by looking at the person, um, no matter what size their body is. Um, so the, the issue is really in primary care particularly, so that's at your GP clinic, that GPs don't tend to want to pick up the signs of an eating disorder, actually regardless of whether somebody is thinner bodied or larger bodied. Um, and that's really the the gatekeeping to eating disorder treatment is, is the GP. So yes, they should absolutely be screening everyone for uh, eating disorders particularly if somebody expresses a concern about their body shape or a concern about their eating habits. They're two uh, red flags that um, every GP in Australia should have their ears out for. Sarah's story does end on a more positive note after she found someone who could see what was going on for her. One of the psychiatrists that I ended up seeing when I did eventually get help, who is one of Queensland's best psychologists, was very clear and said to me, you have a medically induced eating disorder. And he actually turned around to me and said, doctors cause this illness and I as a doctor am going to step up and help you get better. Outside of the medical industry, there are also a bunch of societal factors that are preventing people from looking for the help that they need. Now, I need to make it clear that I use the word fat as value neutral descriptor. It's a word I use to describe myself among plenty of others like strong, powerful, creative, caring, attractive. I have many adjectives. But we have this fat stereotype that is someone who is lazy, defective, and has given up on life. And that's extremely unhelpful. And it's incorrect. A lot of the people that I have worked with uh, over the years have a history of losing a lot of weight, which requires a lot of of effort um, and commitment and motivation and and then ultimately regaining that weight. And we know that there are... um, you know, environmental and biological reasons why that happens, but certainly, you, you know, the vast majority of people I work with have have um, demonstrated kind of commitment and motivation and capacity to change behaviour. Yet there's a spectrum, just like there is, regardless of body weight, in terms of people's, you know, motivation and laziness or whatever, in terms of whatever it is they're working towards. I guess the big question is how do we fix this broken system, especially when there are so many other broken systems competing for attention? The good news is that our experts think things are beginning to move in the right direction, and there are lots and lots of people who are trying to move it in that direction. We're in a really awkward spot where there's starting to be recognition that the old model isn't working, isn't delivering you know, what it's intended to deliver, perhaps even doing harm. There's starting to be awareness of this new alternate model. Uh, but at the moment, we're still at a spot of almost trying to straddle the two. And as I said before, they're really you know, based on often opposing principles. So it's it's kind of hard to hold on to the old and bring in the new. It's, it really feels like we're at a spot where we need a paradigm shift in that space. We're not there yet. What is it that you're trying to achieve with weight loss? And let's work to that directly. So is it mobility? 
So if so, let's like what works for improving mobility? Let's do that. Is it improving cholesterol? Okay, like, let's what works with improving cholesterol? Let's actually do that. Kind of t- let's take weight loss out of the picture and work on the end goal and work on the strategies that we know are going to get people to the end goal. I would wish that they would look at treating the person rather than the weight. So, for example, the same type of treatment of someone in a thin body compared to a large body. Regardless of our weight, you know, I think that it's important to have the knowledge and expertise and hopefully, you know, if you're not aware of this stuff, to go out and seek extra training around it to make the experience more accessible because I can just imagine so many people who are also gone through the same thing and are being misdiagnosed or discriminated against and it's just they're not receiving the level of care they deserve. It is not your responsibility to advocate for yourself if you can't do that. Um, it is our responsibility as physicians um, to recognise and learn about weight science and weight stigma um, and a lot of people don't do that. Um, and we shouldn't be putting the work on our patients to be doing this educating for us. If they say, no, weight's really important and, you know, we have to talk about this and this is my obligation, well, maybe they're not the right doctor for you. And it's okay not to come back um, if you've had that experience. If you are sitting here feeling like you're hurting yourself, whether physically or mentally, in order to control what you eat, whether it's by a large amount or a small amount, or you feel like your eating is in any way not out of control, find someone that is reputable and knows what they're talking about. I would suggest using either NZ or Butterflies Finder where they have trained eating disorder practitioners. Reach out to them and have a chat because you have nothing to lose by having a chat. And if you have a chat and you feel like actually that really solved what I was feeling, then great. But if you have a chat, they might help you realise that there's a lot more going on. Those referral databases that Sarah was just talking about can be found on the Butterfly Foundation's website, butterfly.org.au, or on the website for ANZ, that's the Australian and New Zealand Academy for Eating Disorders, which is anz.org.au. The Butterfly National Helpline is 1-800-ED-HOPE. That's 1-800-334673. It really is the best first step that you can make. Butterfly Let's Talk is produced for Butterfly Foundation in partnership with Icon Media with the support of Waratah Education Foundation. Our executive producer is Camilla Beckett. And as always, please leave us a rating and a comment in the app where you're listening to this podcast. We'd really appreciate that. I'm Sam Eichen. Thank you so much for your company.